Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this amazing day you provided for us. I pray that the congregation of this church opens their heart, ears and hearts and really listen and learn from this passage today. Amen. Isaiah 61, 1 through 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, he has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to, procla to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who, who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. You shall be named ministers of our God. You shall enjoy the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you shall, you shall glory. Because their shame was double, and, dis and dishonor was proclaimed as their lot, therefore they shall possess a double portion, everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their rec recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, as a garden causes what, it's, what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. So this week I heard in the news uh, more than once uh, that there was a study that came out that said that less than five minutes, uh, even one minute a day of meditation has apparently significant health benefits and, and impact on people. And, and I think that's great. I, I'm all for those kinds of practices. I think our world can use anything uh, like that. Um, but I also immediately thought, wow, we have these tremendous resources uh, in the church uh, for a daily practices of prayer that we call the, the daily office or, or other things. And uh, uh, wow, even one to, to five minutes of, of that kind of practice because it had a tremendous impact on our lives. And so I have today here, for anyone who thinks that a one to five minute uh, practice once or twice a day of prayer is just what you need or, or just fits your schedule right. I have uh, two little books uh, that are about that, uh, five-minute uh, reflections uh, that you could uh, use in the morning or evening, and uh, it's really great. It's actually by this guy, Pete Scazzaro, whose book we're looking at uh, in uh, our adult ed class, and uh, these are free for anyone who would like one. I'm going to leave them right here and you can get them after the service. First come, first serve. We're looking uh, today at this uh, passage that Jillian just read, Isaiah 61, and this is one of the most 
uh, significant uh, passages in the Bible. Because when Jesus wanted to describe his own identity and mission, uh, this is the passage of scripture that he went to. Now listen to to this from Luke 4, uh, verses 16 to 22. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine? What, what was he saying? He was saying, I am the servant of Isaiah 61. I bring the ultimate good news. It's here. So we want to understand this, 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 this better, the, the whole message and, and mission of Jesus. And so this month in the season of Epiphany, Pastor Mike and I will be looking at some of these key passages uh, from the book of Isaiah that informed Jesus' self-identity. Next to the Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted uh, Old Testament book in the New Testament. And as we consider Jesus' words, and especially these, these words that we hear uh, him speak in Nazareth on that day, it's clear that this message of justice, especially for the poor and, and the oppressed, that this was essential uh, to Jesus' teaching and, and his mission. And what I want to do today is ask some questions about this by looking at Isaiah 61 in its broader context. So if you don't have your Bibles open to that passage, it's on page 603. We're going we're to take a close look at this today. In Isaiah 61, we hear three voices speaking. There's the voice of the servant, the servant of the Lord, in verses 1 to 7. The voice of God in verses 8 to 9, and the voice of the people who have been delivered uh, in verses 10 and 11. And each of these have something to teach us about the justice that Jesus came to bring. They tell us why justice matters, what justice looks like, and where justice comes from. Let's look at each one of these. First, why justice matters in in the Bible for Isaiah and, and for Jesus. Think of an injustice in the world. It shouldn't be difficult. It might be something that uh, happened to a friend, uh, a wrong of some sort committed against an innocent person. It might be something that you've read in the news recently. Or it may be that something personal, maybe very personal, comes to mind immediately. I'm pretty sure I won't be watching the the Golden Globe Awards tonight, but I've heard that a number of the actresses who uh, will be there are going to be wearing black 
uh, to protest the, the sexual abuse scandal that's been sweeping the entertainment industry. When, when there's something wrong, some injustice, that there, there is something in us, isn't there, that cries out for justice. Where does this come from? I think there, there are basically three options. The sense of justice is, is either a myth, a mystery, or a mirror. Some people say that our, our sense of morality and justice is just a, a quirk of evolutionary biology. You know, it's some kind of myth that we sometimes believe. The, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins uh, has said, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. Justice is a myth, he says. For others, justice is a reality. It's a reality that we have to respect, but it's a mystery. It's woven into the world, but we don't really understand how it got there. This is basically the view of the ancient Stoics and, and many religions. Uh, we may not understand it, but it, it's woven into reality, and life goes better if you respect the principles of justice. The Bible gives us a different point of view. In the Bible, justice is neither a myth nor a mystery. It's a mirror reflecting the personal character of the creator of the universe. This is the voice that we hear speaking in, in Isaiah 61, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and, and wrongdoing. The setting for this part of Isaiah is the Babylonian exile. God is speaking here to a people who have lost everything. They've been conquered. They've been uprooted from their homes. They've become refugees. They've been forced into slavery. To just give you a taste of the, the brutality of this time, uh, consider this account of the Babylonian conquest from uh, 2 Kings, chapter 25. Listen to this. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblai, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. And you, you think we have political problems. Right? This was hard. So the, the Bible affirms 
our, our intuitions about, about justice. That, that there's some things that are wrong in this world and that need to be made right. And Isaiah shows us a God who loves justice and, and hates wrongdoing. Elsewhere, the Bible teaches that human beings are made in the image of this God, made to reflect his justice and, and goodness in the world. So there's a reason why it pains us to hear of refugees dying in the Mediterranean, why we feel helpless in the face of war, angry in response to greed or racism or sexism. The arc of history, the Bible tells us, bends towards justice because the deepest reality of the universe is a God who loves justice. However, he doesn't just tell us that he loves justice. He shows us what justice looks like. In the voice of the, the servant that we hear in uh, verses 1 to 7, we're given one of the most beautiful pictures of what the healing of our broken world would look like. It's no wonder uh, that Jesus chose this passage to give us uh, a picture of his own intentions in Isaiah, the, the, the figure of the servant announces the coming of God's kingdom, of God's reign on earth. The servant is, is the Lord's anointed representative, commissioned to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So when Jesus took up Isaiah 61 and applied it to himself, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, the meaning would have been clear to everyone. The kingdom is here, now, in the person of Jesus. What does this kingdom look like? Well, if you look carefully at verses 1 to 5, you'll see that it's extremely holistic. It includes both social realities, a liberty to captives, and spiritual realities. He announces the Lord's favor. It's both economic, it's good news for the oppressed, as well as emotional. There's comfort for all who mourn. There's an individual element, it's for the brokenhearted, but it's also communal. Whole cities will be repaired. So it's also urban, but it's also rural. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines. And he, he's not only concerned with personal sins, but also systemic, generational injustice. In verse 4, it says that the devastations of many generations will be healed. This is an amazing picture of, of human society in all its different dimensions, healed and made whole. It reminds me of what one of the characters in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia says after entering the, the new Narnia where everything has been made right. Uh, it looks an awful lot like Isaiah 61. Uh, the, univer the unicorn uh, cries out, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come farther up, come further in. 
That's a kingdom vision there. So what do we learn from this picture? Two things. First, uh, the scriptures give us a comprehensive view of human need. According to Isaiah, psychological, social, physical realities are just as valid as spiritual ones. He sees them as an organic whole. And we see this, of course, in the ministry of Jesus in his acts of healing the sick alongside his teaching and his preaching. In Matthew's summary, uh, he says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and sickness among the people. So social justice, economic justice, care for the sick and the poor are not optional. Christians may disagree about how they are to be achieved, and I'm sure that here, even today, we have a full spectrum of political convictions here in this room, but all Christians should agree that the physical, the social, the emotional needs of people are just as important as their spiritual needs, and we're called to follow Christ in in meeting those needs too. That's the first point then. We, We have this comprehensive, holistic view of human needs, but Second, at the same time, this, this, the spiritual aspect of human life is, is essential to true healing. I'll, I'll go a step further and say that if you really want to achieve lasting social justice, you must deal with the emotional and, and the spiritual realities that are at work in people's lives. Now, we see this in Isaiah 61 in a, in a pointed way. Did you notice the theme of healing from grief that we see here? In verse 1, the servant comes to bind up the brokenhearted. In verses 2 and 3, he comes to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. Why is this theme of, of comfort so prominent? Well, if you've experienced grief, and all of us here have in, in some way or another, you know that, that one of the hardest parts of grief is that it, it doesn't just go away. It fades, but the loss remains. And what Isaiah is saying is that the the coming of God's kingdom will bring the deepest possible healing. Healing our, our alienation, not just from one another or from ourselves or from our environment, but our alienation from our, our creator. What, what Kierkegaard called the sickness unto death. And when this is healed, when that deepest part of human brokenness is healed, that deepest alienation, it has inevitable social consequences. Why is that? Well, in his book, uh, Ministries of Mercy, uh, Tim Keller uses the picture of a, a solar system to explain this. There is harmony between the planets, he says, because they all agree on the center, the sun. But if each planet were to have a different center for its orbit, there would be cataclysmic collisions. 
this is the source of so many of our problems, isn't it? With other people, is we, we center on our own comfort and happiness. We live for ourselves. But when, we, when we're reconciled to God, and we, we make him the center of our lives, and we live in community with other people who are trying to do that same thing, it changes how we relate to other people. So what does it look like when you experience healing like this that goes to the core of your being? And we see a picture of, of, of where this kind of healing, this kind of justice comes from in verses 10 to 11. Verses 10 to 11 give us a picture of a person or, or a community that has been redeemed by the work of the servant. Notice that just as we saw an emphasis on, an emphasis on grief in verses 1 to 3, here we see that a, a great transformation has taken place, and all the emphasis now is on joy and praise. It shows us that this is where true, true justice comes from. It comes from a heart that's been changed by grace, that no longer centers on itself, but it centers on God. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exalt in my God. This kind of praise, he says, leads to the fruit of righteousness. The Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Or in the words of a hymn we just sang a couple weeks ago on Christmas Eve, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Both Isaiah and Isaac Watts are saying the same thing. That this joy in the Lord is so powerful that it can't be contained. It overflows to the healing of the cosmos, the, the whole creation, in all its dimensions. So two questions about this. What, what's the source of praise like this? And, and why is it so powerful? And we see the source of this praise in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exalt in my God. For, because, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. First, notice there's a, there's a new status in view here. Right? This, this person has been covered with the garments of salvation. This is a rich biblical image. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam, Adam and Eve leave the garden in their nakedness and in their shame, it's God who clothes them. And the same imagery is used in the New Testament for, for our justification and, and the imputation of of Christ's righteousness, that those who belong to Christ have been clothed in Christ, that his righteousness covers you so that you have a status that is independent of your own past and things that you have done. Now, the point here is that this is not a righteousness that you have earned, but it's a righteousness that is given as a free gift of God's grace. In other words, it's a, it's a goodness that you don't have to fight for. In fact, you don't even deserve, but it's yours by grace. 
You're clothed. But that's not all. Because the verse goes on to describe this clothing as what? As clothing for a marriage. It's not just a legal status. It's a new relationship. This isn't just any robe. This is a marriage robe. There's a consummation that must take place. A a union of love. And so when you see God in these terms, as giving you this kind of gift, as welcoming you into a relationship like this, the result is a profound joy. Because you no longer view him as a distant judge or an uncaring critic. Instead, you know him as your loving father who has given you everything he has. His son to die for you and his spirit to live inside of you. When you believe this, it, it leads to a new motivation to, to obey from the heart. In, in obedience, a, a desire to seek peace and justice for those around you and for the world that's, that's powered not by obligation, but by joy. This is exactly how the Apostle Paul motivated his churches when he was collecting an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. Uh, he writes to the churches in Corinth, and he asked them to send a generous gift for the poor in Jerusalem. And he could have just commanded them, saying, this is the right thing to do. You guys are Christians now. You need to give. But instead, you know what he did? He preached the gospel to them. He, he proclaimed grace to them. And he said in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of of Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see what he's doing? He's saying, look at the generosity of God, of all that he has given to you. How can you hold back from other people? When you know that you've received generous mercy, it makes you a generous, merciful person. One person who understands this uh, deeply is a man named Brian Stevenson. Uh, Brian Stevenson, some of you may know, if you haven't seen his TED Talk, I I suggest you watch it today. Uh, Brian Stevenson is an attorney who spent his life working on behalf of the forgotten and the marginalized. He's the founder of the Equal Justice initiative based in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, which defends people trapped in the criminal justice system, especially children and the poor and the wrongly condemned. And in his memoir, Just Mercy, uh, he recounts story after story of men and women who've been cruelly mistreated, falsely accused, imprisoned, and too often wrongly executed. But the the most remarkable thing about Stevenson is is not his credentials, but his character. Because having seen what he's seen and having been engaged in the work that he's been engaged in for so long, he could be really bitter and angry. But instead, in, in, in everything he does, everything that I've seen, he always expresses compassion and forgiveness and gentleness. 
And in his book, he talks about how moving near the broken has exposed his own brokenness and actually taught him about our common need for mercy. He writes this, There is a strength, a a power even, in understanding brokenness. Because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy and a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things that you can't otherwise see. You hear things you can't otherwise hear. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each one of us. I think that's a profoundly biblical insight. When Jesus came to that synagogue in Nazareth and read Isaiah 61, he was proclaiming a message of mercy for the broken like this. He also did something really unexpected uh, that day because he stopped reading at verse 2 of Isaiah 61 with the announcement of the, the year of the Lord's favor. Most commentators agree that this was deliberate because the very next line in the Isaiah passage is an announcement of judgment. The the servant says that he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus stopped and he said, he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And by leaving off that second half, I don't think Jesus was denying that judgment will come. And we can see that teaching in, uh, elsewhere that he brings, but, but he is saying something important about his mission, that now is the day of gracious salvation, that his mission was a mission of mercy. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we know this is true because Jesus went on to do something even more surprising. Yes, he announced good news for the poor. He healed the sick. But then he was falsely accused, imprisoned, and executed on a Roman cross. The anointed one who had authority to judge the world took the judgment upon himself. He was stripped so that we might be clothed in his robe of righteousness. He died the death that we deserved so that we might receive eternal life in God's kingdom. He experienced judgment so that we might be free from God's judgment forever. He suffered the agony of rejection so that we might become sons and daughters of God. Friends, when when you see that the Son of God has poured out his life for you in in this kind of gracious, self-giving love, you will love others in the same kind of way. Because God speaks over you the same words that he spoke over Jesus at his baptism. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are not a God who who has stayed at a distance, uh, but that you uh, are always moving towards us in your gracious love. We thank you that you have come in the person and in the work of Jesus to reveal uh, to our broken world mercy, healing, and hope. Lord, we still stand 
in need of those things uh, as individuals, as a community, as a country, as a world. And so we pray that you would bring us back uh, to the heart of your grace and your love in him, that we would embrace these things, that you would break down the defenses of our heart, and that we would believe uh, that you love us like this. Would you change us? Would you make us people of mercy and empower us by your spirit uh, to seek peace and justice for all? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.